Hello and welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Simon. I'm Conrad. And I'm Denise. On this episode, we're talking about the latest volume of Doctor Who Audio Annuals. So these are audio books of stories from the Old World distributor Al Annuals. This time, the stories are drawn from the 1983 K9 Annual, which is the only year that one of these was released. This is a, a particularly special book for you, Simon. It is. I remember coming home from school one day in 1983 to find my mum had bought it for 50p in WH Smiths. I Somehow we'd missed it at Christmas because I always got the Doctor Who annual from my Uncle Tim every year. That was... That that was I always knew that was coming, but um, the nineteen eighty three annual just turned up one day after school, and that was very exciting. Honestly, a young boy um, reading stories about investigating covens and satanists works better than that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and that's what mums are for as well, isn't it? Surprising you with uh, Doctor Who bargains. Exactly. I just wondered, where, where is everyone on annual, on the whole annual thing? Because for me, it was a big thing as a kid, and I've sort of traced back where my first few ones were. But how about you guys? Do you Were you annual kids? Yeah, well, my very, very first Doctor Who books were the 1979 and the 1980 Doctor Who annuals from the school fair in 1980. So some kid had obviously got really sick of the 1980 annual very, very quickly. So um, those were the first two two Doctor Who books I ever owned. And I used to just pour over the weird, frankly, pictures in those annuals <laughs> and try and make sense of the stories. But my mum read used to read me the stories. And then from... Um, Christmas 1980, when the 1981 annual came out, it was um, the Christmas present from my Uncle Tim until they stopped in 1986. So, yeah, it was a big part of my Christmas every year. And um, my parents worked out that the best way to keep me quiet was to put the annual from my Uncle Tim in my stocking so that I would sit in bed and read the annual until it was time for everyone else to get up. (laughs) So, yeah, it was a huge part of my childhood. And a cunning plan as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, parents are smart. <laughs> yes, yeah. I um, I haven't actually got that many annuals. I think um, I really got into Doctor Who when I was like eleven, twelve years old. And so, obviously, when you're about fifteen, you're a bit too old for annuals, really. So you sort of stop being given them. They give you money to spend on vodka instead. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> fifteen, wow, <laughs> but, uh, brilliant. But, um, yeah, I have got a few of the – I've got the first ever annual and I've got a few other old ones as well. But, uh, yeah, my collection is bereft. I've got some Blake 7 annuals, though. Mm -hmm. Nice. Very good. How about you, Mark? Yeah, the the annuals had stopped being produced by the time I started watching Doctor Who, unfortunately. Um. So so unpopular um, in the uh, in the public opinion um, was the series by then. Um, so all the annuals that I've got, and I, I don't have the full set or anything, um, are picked up from car boot sales and uh, secondhand bookshops and and like school fairs and stuff like you say um, during the nineteen nineties. So yeah, I don't think I've got anything earlier than about the nineteen seventy or seventy one annual. Um, but I think I've got them all after that. Did you read um, non-Doctor Who ones as a kid? Like, was it a thing when you were a kid, like annuals or not? Or I, don't, 
really think that it was. No, I can't remember. Because I was sort of into like Knight Rider and the A-Team and stuff. I don't know if they produced them for American stuff, did they? Um, uh, yeah. yeah, I can't remember seeing anything yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. They would have done, yeah, yeah. Well, you were lucky you weren't girls because you would end up with a Jackie annual or a Bunty annual or a Diana annual, and I've never even heard of that one. <laughs> and, you know, you read them because you want to be polite. And one year I actually got two copies of the Diana album. Annual, and it was just like, why? Why are you doing this to me? <laughs> they're funny. They're, they're funny things. It's kind of made me. It kind of made me think about what my favourite ones were as a kid. So Doctor Who and non Doctor Who. Um, I think I, I, I had a handful of the Doctor Who ones, and I certainly had like eighty one, eighty two, around eighty. Those kind of ones. But like generally on annuals, I'm, I, 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 I've just found I thought three of my favourite ones, and I looked them up, and they're all in the same year, nineteen seventy nine, age eight was my annual year because I'm because I had the Beano which is a that's like that's the kind of king of annuals really mm. I think the Beano um I had the Dalek annual which I I think is the first Doctor Who annual I fell in love with the 1979 one is fabulous it's all about the anti-Dalek force there are hot men in it it's just amazing um, <laughs> like, and it's, it's got like cross sections of Daleks and it's it's that I I love it so much I can remember everyone and the other weird one I had was um, apparently I remember this and um, because I wasn't allowed to stay up late enough to see the six million dollar man they got me an annual for my birthday as a sort of you know, as a sort of, you know, well, you can't say I haven't watched it, but here's the annual. Because annuals are so made up and extrapolated out of the thing, and there's mm. so much filler in there, I was really kind of slightly bemused to find that the $6 million man apparently liked to do word searches and recipes. And I was like, I'm not watching this. <laughs> yeah. It's rubbish. He's a modern kind of a guy. He's a modern kind of guy. But they're funny, aren't they? Then, you know, this, 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 uh, this canine thing does the same. You kind of, you just get, they got the source material, give it to some freelance writers, and they just have to vamp. Um, and come with mm. fabulous results. Exactly. I, I think part of the joy of the Doctor Who annuals, particularly in the, the 70s, were how much unlike Doctor Who it is a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, so me and Denise have looked at a few of these audio annuals as, as they've come out, and it is a great way of revisiting the stories in them, which I probably wouldn't pick up and read that often. But, yeah, you can definitely trace through through the years as... Um, as the production office probably took more control in the 80s and, um, you know, applied a little bit of editorial um, kind of power over them. Um, but, yeah, some of those, those, that first volume of audio annuals that came out, there's two first Doctor stories where the Doctor ends up spending a night sleeping in a giant cabbage. <laughs> <laughs> like he did on TV all the time. <laughs> Think of the Hartnell, giant cabbages. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, I just sort of imagine a writer sitting at the dinner table. I've got to think of an idea (laughs) for this story. It has to be in by Friday. Uh, And then, you know, kind of uh, looking down at his dinner and going, ah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Cool big finish, I think. Big finish ready to go on that one. Yeah. (laughs) The Cabbage Chronicles. Let's do it. Uh, but the K9 annual is um, is obviously quite quite special, coming uh, hot on the heels of K9 and Company. We all love K9 and Company. Conrad, you recreated the 
the title sequence with Pete? Yeah, I did. Yeah, it's a rite of passage. Um, so we had a go. We went to, we drove around the Cotswolds in a lovely, in a lovely sunny day. And we did a canine and company location visit. And we recreated the titles as you have to if you go there. Although Pete went above and beyond on the editing on that one. And then we did a bit of <laughs> Stones of Blood uh, uh, locations as well. Uh, but I mean, like, I think I posted it recently, but because uh, canine and company just had its 40th anniversary um, in December. <laughs> I know, deep. I know. I'm saying, I'm saying, Denise. Like, it can't be. Um, and uh, but Josh Snares is the king of, uh, in terms of the Canine and Company fan uh, homages. I mean, his his is untouched. It's it's a, it's a masterpiece. But yeah, it's Canine and Company, incredible piece it. of work. Love it. Okay, we'll uh, we'll post links to to both of those. So the stories uh, on this disc are drawn from not only from the 1983 canine, canine annual, but I think we've already mentioned um, for, for Cyan Conrad, you had the 1980 and 1981 Doctor Who annuals as well. Uh, so we've got stories drawn from that. The first one on the disc is The Vote on Terror. It is, and the Doctor, Romana and K9 are visiting a galactic conference in the way that they always did on TV. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's a. I thought it was a really fun story. It was one I always liked because the pictures were really good. There is a wonderful picture in the annual of the Doctor holding his hand up to K Nine, who looks almost affronted to be stopped <laughs> in that way, which I always loved. And also, it has uh, obviously the um, the artist had um, a bit of a. a, a uh, classic Doctor Who um, pictures and based the vote on itself are very closely on um, Scaroff of Jagroff. <laughs> um, so he has a floating worm-like face with little tendrils like a tree underneath. Um, I thought the reading was really impressive. Dan Starkey's Tom Baker is is right up there with John Coleshaw. I was really impressed with, with what he did. That was brilliant. Yes, he was. Uh, he really threw himself in. That was great. Yeah, he yeah he did did great voices for all of the monsters as you'd expect. Um, made them all different and distinctive. And yeah, it was just a really fun way to start the start the um, the audio annual off. I thought. I really like the idea because they they they're taken prisoner by. Um, a creature who is apparently a new me's mud creature, but is really a Voton spy in disguise. And I like the line that the doctor says, uh, he noticed there was some blurring around the edges of the alien, which, is that is that an in-joke about CSO? It felt like it, were, it was, didn't it? It could yeah, be, well... absolutely. I mean, I did notice the descriptions of a lot of the aliens in it was very reminiscent of um, Star Wars cantina kind of a scene, but also I felt the phrasing wasn't too dissimilar to Douglas Adams. So obviously he'd very recently had an impact on the series. So um, yeah, there's, there's some strong humor in there. I liked it very much. Yeah. It felt very season 17 in a lot of ways, didn't it? I, I think it, you could see that they were, were basing it very much on Doctor Who uh, sort of the most recent iteration of Doctor Who when the annual was being written. So it it did sort of feel like um, the proper Doctor and the proper Romana having an adventure in a way that 
it didn't necessarily do when you had um, Sarah Jane or or Leela or Joe sort of earlier on. They felt really well characterised, and K Nine comes out of it really well as well. Yes, I mean that was quite a clever twist to you know the Doctor giving him orders in that particular way, so that uh, it sounds like he's just being told to bog off, but he's not really. <laughs> no, it shows K Nine at his cleverest there. Mm. And, then, and you can imagine Tom Baker doing the showboating bit in courtroom where he kind of goes, he goes the full Brexit just to upset the microscopic mm. Vandalanian delegates. So this, it changes the octave in their voice. Um, and that feels very, there's something like Tom and the Megara in Stones of Blood. It feels like that kind of thing. I can imagine him sort of showboating. Like, mm. like in um, Robots of Death with yes. Leela. Yes, yeah. exactly. And the mm-hmm. helium. I love that it calls it a grovelling, filthy germ, <laughs> which is <just> brilliant. <laughs> what a great term, turn of phrase. <laughs> a similar thing in my notes, Conrad. I, I pictured him like Nigel Farage in the European Parliament, just kind of just yeah. extolling just kind of uh, just racism and, and kind of sheer ignorance and stuff. Yeah, it's... Yeah. Um, maybe It made me wince a bit. I was like, steady on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I like the way the Voton reveals himself as well. He says, I am a Voton spy. And in the way that people in uh, Doctor Who and his friends are always being accused of being a spy. And he goes, no, no, I'm not a spy. So the other way of somebody who is finally meeting somebody who is a spy and just announcing it like that was, uh, was fantastic. Excellent. But it did feel, it did feel authentically Doctor Who-y. You know, this was definitely, it didn't, you know, it's, yeah. It's, it's interesting the mix you get here of the K-9 and company spin-offs and the Doctor Who stories. You know, you do, it's, it's, it's nice to have that sort of, um, I think it's nice just to mix it up a little bit and have more Doctor mm. It gives you that flavour of Doctor Who in there as well. I was thinking about the, the ending where the, the, the Doctor's, uh, you know, kind of, Full of uh, full of pride and everything that he's uh, he saved the day, only for it to be real that the security guard had already defused the bomb yeah. <laughs> on the conference. <laughs> I like that. Oh, I just like the idea of him saying, "Oh, never mind. We'll just go back and we'll go back to the conference again and watch it." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm intrigued by what the what the crisis was that the Time Lords were dealing with that meant that they couldn't actually attend the conference. I wondered if it was the events of the Three Doctors. Wasn't that just a ruse that the um, that the Volon had uh, sent the Gallifreyans the message or something to stop them turning up? Yes, it does say that, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah, I missed that then. Yeah. Uh, because I remember the, the doctor says, oh, I know that this is the year that they didn't turn up, basically, because of some kind of crisis. And I thought, oh, maybe it's the three doctors or the five doctors. Well, <laughs> if we check the Time Lord annual 1987, we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the next story is is from the, the K9 annual. Um, and... Is, is an oddity within the annual in that it doesn't feature Satanists or a cult or any sort of uh, hooded figures um, who, who worship dark powers. This is the monster of Loch Crag. Mm. 
Sarah's taken K9 to Gillycuddy in Scotland to see their old friend, Susan Hamilton. Um, but while she's, uh, she's in the pub, she's lining the drinks up. They're getting ready basically for a massive session. She gets a phone call from her friend um, who's asking for help, but then, then gets cut off. Um, so Sarah, I th- she's already drunk, isn't she? Right at this point. <laughs> well, I say, this is very like the Canine and Company titles, isn't it? With her just gulping down wine. <laughs> but if if she's not hammered, then why has she forgotten uh, Terror the Zygons? <laughs> <laughs> she's she's completely forgotten the event of this. So she she dashes off and finds the phone box that Susan must have used because there's only like one of them. Uh, Driving as well, so hopefully she's not hammered. There we go. She's, driving, she's swerved all not. over the road. She can't she can't find the phone box. She needs K9 to find the phone box, and then she finds the the receiver is is dangling on the cord. Um, the car's abandoned with the door open and a friend's camera is just lying in the undergrowth. Now, the first 72 hours are crucial in a missing person's case. So Sarah <laughs> decides, I'll call the police in the morning. Mm. <laughs> well, we go back to the hotel, we'll call them in the morning, it'll be fine. Um, is it... She doesn't want to get breathalyzed, does she? She doesn't. <laughs> I can't believe the, this, the level of disrespect going on in this podcast today. Slip <laughs> <laughs> it off. Have a, have a nice. Own her addiction. I'm sorry. <laughs> nice full English, a nice hotel breakfast, and then she'll phone the police. Well, Mark. So, yeah, she, she pockets her friend's camera and then goes back and thinks, I wonder what else she's got. I'll, I'll break into a hotel room and have a bit of a route around. But interrupts another burglar who's already in there uh, who, uh, who sort of fights his way out but leaves behind a crest and then they find out that this is the lead of the cra- crag's crest. So <laughs> Sarah and K9, they come up with a plan. So it's one of those scenes where they say, I've got a plan and here's what it is. And then the plan is to, uh, is to go out onto the lock with K9 in a small rowing boat knowing that there is probably a monster out there and <laughs> with, uh, with no means of, of sort of uh, defending herself or anything like that, they see the monster, she screams, and then somebody pulls her overboard while K-9 slowly drifts ashore. Meanwhile, um, the policeman, she did actually phone the police in the end after the, uh, after the burglary that she interrupted, uh, goes to the castle where the laird lives, who we've still not seen, <laughs> and haven't met, and it turns out that he's behind everything. And then it just cuts to the pub and it's all over. <laughs> it's a bit of a rushed ending, isn't it? Mm. Yes. Um, it's quite good for a canine. He gets to pick a lock and uh, he doesn't like being woken up, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Stumbled into the car. Are your dogs like that, Mark? Yeah, you let sleeping dogs lie. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> But I do like um, how the annual has predicted the rise of the sat-nav by using K9 as yes. the sat-nav, which is very good. I, I've always thought it'd be brilliant if they just got K, um, John Leeson in to record every word in the English language like they did Tom Baker so that we could have a K9 sat-nav for real. I'd love that. And I, I like the fact that K9, when she said she was looking for a phone box, he thinks he's looking for the doctor's 
you know. Oh, that was a sweet oh, moment. I love that. This one felt, I really like this one because it felt halfway. This is my favorite one. Thanks, Mark. Um, so it felt, like, <laughs> cause it felt like halfway between a canine and company. It did feel like Doctor Who and the fact the Doctor got mentioned. It did remind me of Zygon, so I got all those feels. Um, and and yeah, but I, again, it's just like we're starting to see the kind of the, the things that like they've watched Canon and Company think, what can we have and stuff like pubs and you know missing missing friends and relatives and phone boxes. You know, they really are just cycling on those few elements. But it does feel authentically Canon. What a Canon and Company series would would have been like. I really enjoyed this one. I thought it was great. Yeah, you, I mean, you could spin this out to fifty minutes by introducing the Laird, showing some of the smuggling. You know, it it feels quite Avengersy, I think. And was it, the, was it the old Loch Ness monster a submarine dressed up as a Loch Ness monster trick? Yeah, mm. it's classic. <laughs> I like this one. I thought, I thought but I it's some kind one. of edict not to have aliens because it's set within the Doctor Who universe. It does feel weird that that none of these things ever turn out to be aliens. That they're that they're all cults or smugglers or. You know, kind of uh, famous five type villains, aren't they? Or Scooby Doo, yeah. Very Scooby Doo, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, like Comrade says, they're just taking the basis of fifty minutes that they've they've got and just extrapolating out from that, and they can only pull it in two ways: smuggling or satanists, and that's all <laughs> they've got. Or sometimes smuggling satanists or satanic smugglers. <laughs> Um, but it was great and also well, I, I really like this one this one because John Leeson reads this one and what's really nice is that whenever Kane does canine dialogue they have John Leeson doing the voice so yes. canine's voice comes in which is such a treat mm-hmm. yeah he goes to town he does a good Scottish accent I think he he holds his head up high there he does uh, he is a lovely man John Leeson I've have met him met? several times over the years and he's always absolutely charming a complete delight yeah, I could just remember being completely flummoxed when I met him, and he talked to me as K nine. It was just, oh my god, no, this is this is weird and wonderful, and I love it, and I don't know how to feel about this. Because <laughs> K nine was the first thing in Doctor Who that I really, really loved, so it was a a big, big thing that was. I mean, he used to. The first conventions I went to were in the 1980s, and he always used to sit with Matt Irvin, and they always had a great yes. rapport together. And uh, so you'd have a nice chat with them when you were getting your autographs. And uh, yeah, really, really lovely guy. He's a smash. I remember 1983 was the year the year his annual came out was the year of the uh, the, the Longleat 20th anniversary, mm. which I got to go to that famous oh wow crammed debacle, our Woodstock. Um, oh, yeah, my dad took me because Longleat was fairly near where we were. We used to go to Longleat because I used to go to the Doctor Exhibition, and uh, there was one uh, sort of panel uh, as you'd call it now that we got to go into, and it was uh, with Elizabeth Sladen and John Leeson. So that was the one I went into. I was really there for Elizabeth Sladen. Um, and it was very cool, and he was wonderful, and she was wonderful, of course. And there was a time for any, for any questions, and I sh- I put my hand up. They didn't choose my question, but my question was actually to Elizabeth Slade. My one burning thing I wanted to know is, is and Co- are you going to make any more canine and company? Which I'm quite glad I didn't ask, because A, it would have been a no, and B, I would have mm. outed myself because the entire room, including my dad, at one in one moment. So I probably better not have done that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> gay boy. When's K9 and Company coming back? Um, <laughs> that was the one thing. I, the one thing I wanted to ask them. But um, yeah, they're fabulous. The pair of them. But I like this one actually. Yeah. I think this is my favourite one. 
I, I did like it. Did you, Mark? Didn't sound like you did. <laughs> <laughs> there was a fiction of mocking, I think. Was it? Was it? Okay. <laughs> Um, so another story is drawn from uh, the, one of the Doctor Who annuals, the 1980 annual, rather than the K9 one, is the Reluctant Warriors. Mm. Yeah. So this is um, the Doctor and Leela again, and sorry, Leela Romana again, Romana two, I believe, and uh, she was my favourite Romana, and um, yes, it's the planet Banto, and. Um, can't read my own writing there on my notes. I'm sorry about that. Um, oh, there's this lovely moment right at the start where um, K9 sniffs a lamppost. How adorable is that? <laughs> so, yes, they arrive at the planet Banto. The doctor wants to meet a friend of his. Um, they are aliens. They have um, green faces and yellow hair. Is that right? And... Um, it all sounded a bit weird to me. I mean, from our 2022 perspectives, the idea that a leader is off his head because he wants people to have a bit more leisure time, is, that's a bit contrary to um, modern attitudes. I suppose we've got a lot more decadent in the last 40 years. But um, he went a little bit too far, and so... Um, there's no work, there's only entertainment, and the entertainment becomes more and more extreme. And um, they are adults whose only goal is pleasure. Um, and so they go and visit the friend. He's a bit scared. He's a bit worried. They The police turn up because the fact that Romana and the doctor and their friend are talking means that they're having a meeting and meetings are banned and that's an idea we can all get behind right fellas but um <laughs> but yes they get arrested and they get taken to the leader who um when he sees K9 of course he's delighted it's a new toy he's a little bit like i suppose the king in chitty chitty bang bang you know he's all about the toys so um but he doesn't get to keep him. Um, but this is read by Jeffrey Beavers, and he is so good when he's doing Sinister. I mean, obviously, he was the master, but he can turn it on at the flick of a switch. He is brilliant at reading this. Um, yeah, he can make even the most innocent, lovely-sounding sentence sound drip with evil and pure mm. menace. <laughs> Yes, he really, really can. So um, Romana is imprisoned um, and the Doctor and his friend are sent to fight in these gladiatorial-style games with these strange double-edged daggers and the, um, the leader has this ray which he can turn up and promote aggression in other people and he's lured a load of people from other countries to fight in this enormous battlefield. Um, by telling them he wanted a military parade and so they bring the best soldiers and the best tackle and then he brings them there and they are fighting each other and the doctor actually ends up on the battlefield. It's quite a horrible image really with his scarf trailing in blood 
it's um it's a shocking thing but uh Romana manages to escape and with K9's help they get back into the leader's room and they basically turn every switch that they can find and eventually manage to turn down the ray and the doctor manages to also overcome the effects of the ray as it gets as it lessens and he leads everybody out of danger so um yeah it was quite a brutal story with some brutal imagery but uh, again the idea of the leader who just wants pleasure and entertainment and voyeurism and uh, rather than people actually making things and doing things it's uh, it's a bit of a strange one but uh, it was a nice little story but not my favorite from uh, from the group yeah, it, it feels like it's. I was just trying to think, like, is this how Doctor Who is it? And like a lot of it feels like it because they, you know, end up in prison, knocking out guards, and all this sort of stuff. And I can really see see a lot of that. I mean, it's got obviously it's got a bit of the you know the sort of death games and the deadly games is something that Doctor Who will revisit a few times. I could, I, th- I think the illustrations are show like in the annual throw me off a little bit because they're a bit more sword and sorcery like. But I think if you just just hearing on, on the annual, it, I think it, I think it does just about. You can hold it in your head as a Doctor Who thing, but only just about, I think. Yeah, the whole premise felt quite Star Trek to me. I thought original series Star Trek, That's particularly with the rays that make people feel things mm. or, or feel sort of extreme things and sort of the battlefield and playing that out sort of felt quite like arena and sort of war to, battle to the death. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes they go places where they wouldn't have gone in the TV show itself, and I think that's quite a common feature with a lot of the stories in the annuals. They they go a little bit darker and um, something a little bit more engrossing, perhaps, for the, someone who's interested enough in Doctor Who to have the annuals and to be absorbed in a story like that. I didn't think the characterization was was particularly great. The, the doctor calling Roman a child—that's that's more like somebody who's used to William Hartnell's doctor, isn't it? And and maybe writing for that doctor, and the way he would speak to Susan or Vicky or, or something like that. And and, and really, when um, Romana steps out of the TARDIS as well, she um, she immediately sort of complains that she get wrinkles because it's too sunny, and, and that kind of thing. they didn't they didn't massively ring true, I think. Well, no, she'd have regenerated her way out of that, wouldn't she? <laughs> but um, yes, yeah, that was that was a misstep. You sort of wonder which doctor was that written for, you know? But what well, I did, I did like the end though, with the three of them all having done their part to to solve the problem, and then bickering about who it was that actually saved the day. <laughs> <laughs> and canine yeah. just keeping quiet <laughs> about his part in it all. Yeah, I suppose it's um, it's a bit like um, Vengeance on Virus, isn't it? As well, this this idea that uh, you know taking reality TV and stuff to extremes that you know leads to people trying to kill each other and uh, and, and you know kind of violence and stuff. Yes, yeah, it's um, prescient in a way, but. Uh... We've gone in a slightly different direction, haven't we? The dystopian futures that we imagined, they're not quite the same as the one that we find ourselves living in. 
That's it. It's it's love, not war, isn't it? We've got Love Island and, and Married at First Sight rather than, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, bloodthirsty battles and things like that. Mm. Um, the, 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 yeah, the Ray of Wrath stuff, it kind of made me think of, um, you know, the first Kingsman movie. Um, and if you've seen that, where um, there's like a, a kind of a, a beam that goes out and, uh, you know, turns everybody really psychotic and murderous. Ah, it's like um, The Ultimate Evil by Wally K. Darley. Yes. Mm-hmm. There you go. See, there's no new ideas. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought of that one. That's right. It was a lovely, lovely reading, though. It's really super. They chose, I mean, Je- Jeffrey Beaver's playing that villain is just fantastic. And it's interesting, his, it's interesting to hear when you hear all different voice actors' interpretation of what a doctor sounds like. His doctor sounded mm. kind of quite, he didn't go for try to do Tom Baker, which I'm sure he would do. It was a slightly more sort of generic, sort of slightly sort of posh older man kind of, you could just tell he was wearing a cravat other than that. It was kind of quirky. But it's so interesting to, hear, to see where people place a generic doctor in their minds or whether they try and go for a specific impression because Jeffrey, I don't think Jeffrey Beavers was going for Tom Baker. I think he was going for a, a sort of his version of being a doctor, I think, yes. in a way. Mm. But it's what a treat, what a voice. I mean, just lovely. I mean, having him on the same disc as Bonnie Langford is just like fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this was like, yeah, total opposite. But you want, that's what you want, you know, to keep your ear interested. You need that range. It's, it's, it's great. Uh, so then the the final story that um that does not involve uh, demonic worship uh conrad is the light fantastic yeah the light fantastic so in this one it's uh, the doctor romana and it's the first romana um and k9 land on a very very dark and mysterious it takes a long time to even get the scanner to work and see what's going out there uh planet ux80 not to be confused with the ZX81 home computer that came out the following year that I had. It was like a flat calculator that didn't do much. Um, which has been ravaged and made inhospitable by an, a terrible outbreak of Terry Nation radiation. Um, and <laughs> they spend, basically spent half the story. It's one of those stories which is all set up, which actually I quite like. There's a lot of being in the TARDIS, gradually trying to work out the instruments, trying to work out the radiation, trying to get the video scanner to work in the TARDIS. Love a video scanner. Um, but uh, with a little bit of investigating, the doctor says that he's on a special assignment to try and find out about this missing Time Lord, um, which is really nice to have that kind of tie-in, um, and how he could have survived amidst all this radi- radiation. After a lot of, uh, and K9 is doing a lot of energy readings and all of this, and it turns out that uh, this uh, rogue Time Lord, uh, now, no, now called Radic, is the sole occup- occupant of UX-80 and was kicked out of the academy due to his dodgy experiments in radiation. Um, at some point, he's, either he seems to turn into or is able to change the form into a big orange gelatinous, quite expensive, you wouldn't be seen on TV, blob that can render the Doctor and Romana immobile. They get into spacesuits, which is wonderful. Um, and then very basically, it's kind of after a very, very long beginning, a quick encounter with a villain, it's fairly quickly tied up with basically Romani using the sonic screwdriver to, uh, while, while the villain's talking away about what his frequencies and his radiation, 
she just zaps him, and there's even a little illustration in the uh, in the annual of her holding the sonic screwdriver aloft, which by pure coincidence is at the same uh, frequency. I think it's 80 kilohertz, um, which is exactly the same frequency as uh, the villain operates on. So he is vanquished in a <laughs> dazzling, dazzling uh, beam of light in which he disappears, and they all go off, and it's all quite jolly. Um, it's it's um you know it's a slight thing but it's nice to again it's nice to have some each of these stories does have a you know a few drops of authentic doctor who in here and i think the talk talking of of time lords and the talk of the academy and even a particular model of tardis that romana mm. recognizes and says oh yeah this is from the conic period and so this is a red which cone. turned out to be 70 years previously yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely so i love all that so there's some genuine you know, Time Lady, Time Lord Academy business mm. here, which is really nice. So even though, and, and a rogue Time Lord, you know, although he he was, you know, his is unpermitted experimentation in the field of radiation, but it could have easily been black holes, you know. Um, in terms of the print version, because like, you know, I've got the annual here to look at. It's just as well, it's a very dark and murky planet, because I think they might have done it so, so you really couldn't see the likenesses of anybody. <laughs> I'm just talking about one of the amazing illustrations now, which is basically basically a big black square with a bit of lightning in it like you really they have really buried taken advantage of the dark darkness on this planet to kind of bury any image you can just about make out of you so it's all very there very is murky. a great image of the doctor in his spacesuit with his scarf draped around it as that's well nice. which i really liked that's a nice touch and it's quite it's um it's you know, it's nice to keep the illustrations dark, which obviously you don't see on audio, but it might inform how they write these things because the companions frequently not only, like, the, I mean, the doctors, they usually just grab a couple of publicity stills and general pictures of the actor not wearing their costumes. That's always odd. But the assistant, uh, whoever it is in these annuals, is usually not only any woman at all, but will change from panel to panel. Like, it's just kind of, it really doesn't seem to matter in the 70s, as long as there's some girl in the picture. It's, um, so, but that's the illustrators. The story, the, the actual writers kept on track with it, and it's it's a pretty good Romana, uh, Romana one, I think. Um, she pulls him up on stuff, corrects him on stuff. He does patronise her a bit, um, but uh, I think she holds her own quite well in this. So I think it, it's not the. It's like a, a one episode. It was like if Doctor Who was twenty five minutes long, this would have been a whole episode, one episode. And I think, I think it feels. It's not the most fascinating in the world, but I think it feels authentic and a, a little tickle of Time Lords and Tardises in the Academy. Mm. Makes it feel nice. There was one interesting bit that uh, struck me. Something that Romana says to. Radic, you know, the fact that you're reacting so badly to being kicked out of the academy means that that was actually the right decision. And, you know, that's sort of uh, a little moral maybe for the readership, sort of you've got to be a good loser and understand why you lost when you do. And uh, I like that exchange because I thought that, that this guy has wiped out all the life on this planet. He's really, really powerful. They're at his mercy. And he says, well, you know, if I'd still been on Gallifrey, I would have been a Time Lord by now. Um, so you can be in this situation, a bit of delicate touch required, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of diplomacy. And she goes, well, you didn't. You failed. You, you got kicked out. <laughs> uh, it was a bit of like a doctor. Suck it up, buttercup. Yeah. <laughs> 
sometimes there's a bit of a doctor thing, isn't there, of, um, of, of winding up the villains so that they'll make a mistake or, or give something away. But it just seemed like, uh, well, we're Time Lords and you're not. You're not. <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe there's an evening class you can join. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but again, this is an odd one because this canine doesn't do a great deal in this one no he's really there for sort of just giving up he's kind of there at the earlier part of the story sort of giving all the information and the readings and all that kind of stuff but i did wonder why they chose this one and um for him because it's not an amazing story for canine no that's true actually um I mean, he does a lot of readings out of figures and stuff, which is great. And it's lovely hearing it in John Leeson's voice who reads this story. Um, is it, like, just, also, I was reading, reading the, the, like, reading the annual while I was hearing him. It's always interesting to see how somebody processes the, you know, which bits they, how, how slavishly they stick to the intonation and the punctuation and everything. And it's, re- and it's really nice to hear how John Leeson is so precise on all the... Because it's really difficult to sight-read a lot of this stuff when it's like 3.00000% da-da-da. It's actually quite hard to, to rattle off, but he does it beautifully. Of course he does it beautifully. But um, Yeah, and considering there's a lot of technobabble in this one, John Leeson does a great job on yeah. all of that and keeps it flowing and keeps it sounding interesting. Yeah, it is, it's... Uh, and he's... he's it's, it's lovely hearing his, his not just his sort of uh, impressions, as it were, of the Doctrine Romana, his characterizations of the Doctrine Romana, but it's nice to hear the whole tone, his storytelling. It's re- what's really, I mean, the real joy of these audio analysis is being told stories. And it's just lovely mm-hmm. to hear these very different voices telling you stories. And, and, and John Leeson pitches it perfectly for the annual, I think, like, and the age that this annual's pitched at. The most closely with these actors as well, so it must be quite nostalgic for him. Yeah, this was recreating that that time of his life and uh, and of his career. Yeah, his, his characterization and fondness for K nine, and even you know, even when he's describing what K nine does or his attitude, you really get K 9s whole attitudes and personality just shines out through all of these stories. Actually, I mean, he's not got tons to do in here, but I think the fact John Leeson's reading it. Really, really helps. Just makes it, doesn't it? Yeah, God, I love K9. Yeah, there's, like, there's a lot of technobabble kind of stuff that's just thrown in, isn't there? The uh, when they take off, Romana thinks that maybe that the the TARDIS is spinning faster than usual. Um, which, it, yeah, it's, a, it's an odd thought that you you get a sense that the because uh, when you see it, the TARDIS in flight in space. It is spinning, but you never get the sense that the occupants are aware of that. But maybe that is like a Time Lord thing as well, that they, they can sense the outside of it. Uh, and she puts it down to like the subjective factor and all these kind of just made up um, things that have never been mentioned in the series. But yeah, it's, um, it's, it's all, all sort of adds to it, doesn't it? I like the, um, the when, when they first land on the planet and, and there's a villain announces himself and says, this is Radio UX80 on 80 kilohertz VHF. Welcome to this planet. <laughs> it's very Radio 1 in 1980, yeah, like, isn't it? drive time. Yeah, love it. <laughs> he was more north-north digital though, wasn't he? <laughs> Next up, to pow. Um, <laughs> I'm not laughing. I love to power. I won't hear a word. So now we, uh, the rest of the stories are all taken from the canine audio annual and all feature 
um, Sarah and K9, and sometimes Brendan and Aunt Lavinia battling satanic forces. And with that, listeners, we've all just put our hoods up. <laughs> you should see it now. It's quite. Oh, Mark has actually put his. Oh, Mark up. actually has. <laughs> that is truly sinister. We've lost one. Oh, it, it, the, just for clarity, it's a hoodie. It isn't a, a, a cowl. So <laughs> it's a cowl. He says that. Yeah, it's a cowl. <laughs> We're trapped. Help. <laughs> uh, so, so what's everybody's favourite um, coven-based tale? I have to say, I really liked the Shroud of Azeroth with George Spielberg, the director. Who could they have based that that one on? And it actually had a pretty good twist, I thought, where it turns out that it's the production secretary who hates everyone on the whole production, who's been killing them all off, sort of one by one, um, because um, her... Her parents was, were killed by the original cult. I thought that was a, a really dark twist, actually. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, and it, I thought that was quite a, an exciting little story, um, packed full of incident with big lights falling down, people falling off rails high up, Sarah Jane in danger, sort of all the way through. Yeah, that was a really, really fun one. I like, the, I like the bit when someone where it said uh, they were obviously on a film set and it says one of the unit stuntmen fell off the thing. I was like, don't break the fourth wall. Don't, <laughs> don't mention Havoc. <laughs> and then for the production secretary, and that's a great gag, it's, you know, because there's writers, directors, and you think it could be a bitter actor or something like that. But the fact it's a production secretary feels very Dr. Huey as well, called Jill yeah. Grant. That's. Mm -hmm. Is Grant. Yeah, because mm. they set it up to be the, the actor who's behind it all, don't they? And then, usually then there's an extra twist on top because he, he'd been sacked and it wasn't him on set at all. I did slightly suspect when she was the only named character other than George Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> she, might have, she might have a bigger part to play. Um, but then they do, they do quite effectively because they bring in the idea that the writer, his real name is... Diath, mm. <laughs> uh, and is it is is his ancestral home that um, that they're filming in, and that's that was the seat of the uh, of, of this week's cult. But yeah, it's um, interesting that they use the word Spielberg. I, I was sort of having a look to see where you know where Spielberg, yeah. Steven Spielberg, was in his career at this point. So he he was obviously huge. He'd done um, E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark. Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So it's like four absolutely massive films. So it wasn't yeah. like they... Doctor Who magazine, yeah, I'm going to say Doctor Who magazine at the time was always, there were always adverts for, for a biography of Steven Spielberg, I seem to remember, where they had sort of pictures of him with, with sort of his famous um, people behind him that he directed and, and, and the shark from Jaws. It's one of those little memories that sort of Amazing. triggered in my head. Yeah, it's authentic. I think it's really exciting. I think it's probably probably the one that stretches furthest from the usual canine and company type stuff. Because a film set is quite that's quite glamorous and it's quite I mean, this is as you said, Denise, this is the most Scooby Doo, I think. Because it's like, mm. you know, a film set with you know with someone in the and there's always an unmasking. But for this one it feels particularly Scooby Doo with the falling lights and the I think this is, but, but I think it's probably the one that goes further. Is probably the most ambitious, I think, 
out of it, it, you're not just in a village; you're somewhere somewhere else. Um, I think, yeah, I, I do like. I love this one. It's really fun. And there's a huge fire at the end, which is fabulous. Do we think, or do we know whether um, any of these stories in the annual were in fact um, mooted as possible stories for the series had it been made? I'm not sure. I don't know how far they got with. Uh... I suspect they never got as far as thinking of anything until they wouldn't have done until they'd got the green light really for the series. Mm. But yeah, I mean, you, again, like the um, mystery of um, Lock Crag, you can see this one sort of being stretched out quite nicely. It'd be quite Hammer House of Horror, but for kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it almost feels yes. a bit more like a Sarah Jane one. This one, you could see the Sarah Jane Adventures. Sorry, this is yeah. you could almost see something like this if it had maybe a slightly more alien thing. You can. It's lovely to see what could have been, actually. It does make you think. Because obviously the Canon and Company is such a strange thing. It's such an enclosed little bubble of a thing. It's really hard mm. to see what else they would have done. I mean, it's so strange to, to have a, a series about a robot. You know, it's really the popularity of a robot dog. You know, robots, that's the most exciting thing. that they didn't. And she's a journalist. Like, why not set it in, you know, in a city? It was, canine versus an evil computer or something one of of the things that's um, on the album as well is um, introducing canine and in that it's very very optimistic that there's going to be a series and that canine is always going to save the day when Sarah gets herself into her scrapes in her exciting career and it's a funny little thing isn't it Um, because it's full of inaccuracies and then <laughs> at the end and it's like that in the annual as well it's like just before it went to the printers somebody read it and went yeah there's uh, there's loads of errors in there and so there's a little footnote like it was the only thing they could do was just to place this um, at the bottom to say uh, actually to keep the record straight this is like the third canine and all that stuff <laughs> I wondered whether this, whether those two bits were lifted from the potential series bible for the for Canine and Company. Whether these were the sort of production notes that they put together, because I think they did put something together for um, who the characters were and stuff for for um, for Terence Dudley. Not that he paid a great deal of attention to anything <laughs> that had gone before. So I, I did did just wonder whether that sort of was verbatim what what was handed out at the time. Yeah, I mean, my favourite of the, um, I think, has to be Hound of Hell, you know. I mean, poor K9, he has quite the time of it. He gets shot and he gets injured and they have to, poor Brendan has to fix him. Um, Bonnie Langford is doing the voices, of course, and um, Brendan, in her voice, comes across a lot long lot younger because I think Ian Sears voice had actually broken by the time he was Brendan in um, and he was sort of O-level age or something like that wasn't he but uh, um, but yeah he manages to get him to a point where um, his automatic repair system kicks in after he's been shot to pieces and that's very impressive and uh, I'm always happy when I can do that with my laptop as well (laughs) 
<laughs> just get the damn thing to restart. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I, I um, love the fact that given the, the sort of the fact it's unlimited, they can do whatever they like. They set it in a marsh, and canines struggling to move. Like it's <laughs> a little harsh as a writer. You're not. You're kind of slightly well, painting yeah. a corner there, maybe. Yeah, and the the, uh, the stone circle thing is, is is like a staple of this type of story as well, isn't it? I suppose. Um, when you say this type of story, do you mean a canine and company story? Because <laughs> <laughs> they're all based on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, this week it's Sarah who's going to be sacrificed, not Brendan. Yes. So it, there's a change. <laughs> I've recently watched uh, the Quatermass TV series. I think at Denise's recommendation, it's been uh, repeated on Talking Pictures. TV and that's all about stone circles and things as well. So that was uh, so that was good. They're quite um, kind of a, a rich uh, kind of rich ground, aren't they, for for, for stories because they're so kind of mysterious and ancient and everything. Mm, yes. And so, what did you think of Quatermass? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, it was it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, young Toya Wilcox there, and uh, well, which one was she? She played um, one of the planet people. Sally, the one who wanted to stay with um, the professor at the end after his wife and children had been. Oh, I didn't. I didn't recognise her. Yeah, that was Toya. I only know her from more than thirty years in the TARDIS. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm not really familiar with the rest of her oeuvre. It's a mystery. That's just for all. <laughs> Thanks for picking that up. Good. <laughs> But they just seem to be, they're, they're just there. She's just trying to pop them, isn't she, the Satanists? Was it, do you think it was for a news story or? Yeah, well, she's got, she's a working girl. She's got to earn a living to keep up yeah. with all her outfits and keep her mini metro going, you know. She's got to earn a living. That's a girl that about Chardonnay's town. not going to buy itself. Absolutely. She's a plucky journalist with a nose for a good story. She can't be hanging about. Yeah. You, you say her mini metro. Well, I'm no, not... she's got a fabulous car in oh, the illustrations. Yeah. Upgraded. <laughs> this doesn't come across in the uh, in the audio annual. Is that like a Ferrari or uh, some kind of sports car? Mm-hmm. She's driving there. Love that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Obviously, all looking, those exposes. She's looking the there, isn't she? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think all those exposes of Satanist cults uh, <laughs> that she's selling to the Metropolitan magazine every week is paying off for her big time now. <laughs> And another thing in this illustration, listeners at home, is that we'll have to post some of these, Mark, on the on the on Twitter on the Twitters or the show notes. Is that again they've slightly painted themselves in the corner. They didn't need to do this, but they've actually sort of obscured Kane, um, Sarah driving like it's a stunt person driving. Um, they've kind of you can't you could have fully. That's your opportunity to see Sarah with her hair blowing in the wind, her teeth, teeth set in determination as she goes after these Satanists. But they've given her a stunt person even in the drawing. I love that. Can I just say one of the chief pleasures of this and Bonnie Langford reads it brilliantly is to hear Bonnie talking about the Satanists because in this story mm. everyone's like Sarah world round and three Satanists were behind her and the Satanists <laughs> got up and they got a gun and it's just like the way she says it's just fabulous I love I love hearing Bonnie mm. Langford do this and hearing Bonnie do Sarah is wonderful and Bonnie's interpretation of being Sarah is just like it's like you're getting more Mel and more Sarah at the same time it's Christmas but yeah, her delivery of the whole story, her tone is absolutely perfect for these stories. She's got 100%. it absolutely right. Hundred percent. I think I think I'm right in saying this is the only story where they actually say Satanist, isn't it? Oh yes, yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, 
the druids as covens, but they don't quite, or black magical stuff. But no, I think this is the first one. It really, it really sticks in your ear when you hear it over and over again in a children's story. Because <laughs> <laughs> she, she, Bonnie really goes in on every word. Like she tastes, like every word, she really, really, you know, just breathes life into. So when she says Satanist, you can hear it. And mm. I like that. And where, where does this come from? Like, is it from Hammer Horror? the idea that there are like satanists and cults and things just because like i um i don't remember the 80s that well um because because i was only a kid but recently listening to um there's there's two brilliant podcasts on bbc sounds so there's john ronson's things fell apart and there's another one called the coming storm and there's one of the john ronson episodes about the satanic panic in america in the 80s where they genuinely believed that there was Satans everywhere and there's Satanists everywhere and they'd infiltrated like schools and nurseries and that they were, you know, kind of performing rituals on children and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And then the, I can't remember the chap who makes the other one, but that sort of draws a line basically from like the witch trials, like the 17th century through the sort of satanic panic in the 80s to the QAnon stuff that's going on at the moment the idea that Hillary Clinton is the head of a Satanist paedophile ring and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And it just seems like, you know, it's obviously a bigger deal. I think generally it's a more religious country in America, isn't it? So there's, there's maybe the feeling that, uh, you know, kind of the religion is under threat and things from saying this. But there seems to have been for a long time the genuine belief that there are Satanists living there and uh, accruing positions of power and everything like that in a way that I don't think there is in this country. So I just wondered whether that is like bleed through from American culture or whether it is more from like a tradition of hammer horror and that type of story. I have a feeling it's sort of a bleed through from hammer horror. Um, sort of one of the most read authors at this time was Dennis Wheatley, who all sort of specialized in novels talking about, um, cults and um rituals and satanist things and a lot of his his books were were filmed so i think there was sort of that that feeling and um sort of what they call now sort of folk horror was a a very big thing from sort of the late 60s and into the 70s wasn't it yeah so things like um the wicker man and um stuff like that sort of was in sort of the ether but i think feel like sort of the early 80s of sort of a bit later bit late in the uk for all of that sort of the early 70s was the big the early to mid 70s was the big sort of time for for those things really so hammer are down on their their luck at this point and um doing the tv shows but um yeah it's i mean it's part of it's part of our national consciousness and shared memory i think you know it's part of uk folklore and um I mean, there is the horror and the terror there. I mean, say what you like about Satanists, but they do believe in God because uh, <laughs> there's no Satan mm-hmm. without God. But, um, the, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a whole genre, isn't there? There's the Hammer Horror, there's the um, Omen films, there's um, Rosemary's Baby, there's the... Um, the Salem films or miniseries that was in the late seventies, and um, it's there. It's it's part of part of our storytelling subconscious in a way. So that it turned up in Doctor Who and it turned up in Canine Company. 
And it still crops up. I was just watching the new series of Mandy, uh, Diane Morgan's uh, kind of sitcom, which uh, which I absolutely love. Um, and in the first episode, that she sort of stumbles across uh, like a, a satanic cult of uh, you know, and it's it's always like it's the hooded figures. And in this case, they've got the masks, which uh, you know reminded me slightly of Mask of Mandragora, which I suppose is off the top of my head, Doctor Who's only real kind of um, flirtation with that sort of genre, is it? Stones of Blood. Oh, yeah. Yeah, across Stones of Blood, yeah. And the Demons, I guess, as well, sort of taps into that too, yeah. doesn't it? So, yeah, and I suppose we always picture, like, the, the hooded, cloaked figures and that type of stuff. But it, it's generally it's just in fiction in this country, isn't it? There's no real sense that people think that there are Satanists out there or anything that I'm aware of. Yeah. <laughs> And it does, it does feel a little like, because often I think ideas like adult, when it comes to children's and in inverted commas stuff, it, it often kind of starts off with the adults and then kind of trickles down and gets sort of, sort of diluted. But even in uh, Doctor Who terms, it's, it feels a little late. If you think in 1981, Doctor Who was sort of pulling the lever, you know, around from sort of gothic and spooky through to like, it's the 80s, it's all neon and technology. And that's why Canine and Company feels a little. Um, a little anachronistic and a little old-fashioned, and you've got the robot dog, and you've got Sarah who connects to Tom Baker, but instead of leaning into the canine technology bit, they kind of go, it's, it feels slightly um, after its time a little, um, or, or a bit of a missed opportunity in that respect. But yeah, it's, it's, it, I think it does feel like a sort of um, the remnants of all that 70s interest in, in Satanism and stuff. Yeah, I think... Um... Bob Baker particularly was sort of quite vocal about um, what a missed mm. opportunity the series was, obviously because he missed out on a lot of royalties for the use of K9. But he was saying, but why aren't you using K9's sort of technological um, abilities? Why aren't they sort of investigating computer fraud and bank heists and things like that, which would feel far more 80s, I think, than, than this does? This feels like a bit of a throwback at the time. And has anybody watched the Australian K9 TV series? I've only watched the first episode. I don't know. I'm what... afraid so. <laughs> <laughs> and even I didn't quite get to the end of it. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's... What's it, so what's it like? For those of us who've never seen it, what is it like? <clears throat> um, it's um, basically, it's apparently set in London, but everyone um, in it, it's um, filmed in Sydney. So, so it doesn't look very much like Hulk. London, right. although they do put in lots of black cabs and um, <laughs> and lamp posts to make it kind of look a tiny little bit like uh, they're in London. And um, basically, K9 Mark One turns up from, from a time storm, gets destroyed, and it gets rebuilt as new fangled K9, and then goes on adventures with with some ki- some super kids and their professor friends. Uncle Dad, I can't remember exactly. Uncle Dad, um, but, is that what he's called? Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. Professor Uncle Dad, yeah. Yeah, and there's, there's a bit of an ongoing plot as well with, with some villains though, who were after K9 um, from what K9 was on his original mission doing because he'd been sent on a mission by the Time Lords. So, so the continuity is sort of all there, but there is um, a great episode where um, K9 turns evil and flies around with a great big cloak. Oh, yeah! I, I saw oh, that. I bet that's adorable. Thought, that. mm-hmm. Get this to Denise immediately. <laughs> <laughs> 
The thing I remember, because I think I only watched the first one I found odd, was that K9 laughed in it, and that just immediately felt very odd. Yeah, the characterization was a bit off, but they did get John Leeson to be to give them their due, and he did voice the new cutesy K9. So the uh, the last story um, that we haven't talked about is Power Stone, um, which is another one um, about kind of cultists and stuff. They um, they're just everywhere, aren't they? Like they're literally yeah. coming out of walls. Now, they literally, literally are. they're yeah, under literally. Sarah Jane's house now. <laughs> <laughs> So the the other story, the the Hound of Hell, that was obviously within driving distance of where she lives, um, and, and the canine could fully trundle back to the um, back to the stones as well um, the, the next morning. So that's actually we didn't mention about that was the odd thing that they were all armed to the teeth, and uh, the uh, so you say canine got shot up and everything, didn't phone the police. <laughs> murdered. Another example of uh, of her not phoning the police. Yeah, but in this story, the police are called off screen to end the story really quickly. <laughs> well, Mark, I'm, just glad, I'm glad you're not a ghostwriter. Like one of these annuals, goodbye. And then the police called, then it was all over. I'm like, right, brilliant, thanks, <laughs> thriller. <laughs> I think the, the misdirect in this one is that um, Professor Exposition Clay is, um, you think he's going to be the villain because he phones Sarah and says, come to the museum, I need to talk to you. And it's on the way there that she's ambushed by the three hooded figures. How else would anybody else know that she would be on that stretch of road? And yeah, he, he says, oh, I'll stay there, I'll come and pick you up. And you think for sure he's the bad guy. Uh, and then when he isn't, that's that's a bit of a rug pull, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's a, it's just another case of Sarah Jane taking down um, the local the um, the local journalists, like in Canine and Company itself. So she's she's be in charge of the local paper by the end of the week because there won't be anyone left to write for it. Well, she, she doesn't like it when the um, tables are turned on her, does she? When somebody gets investigative on her ass, then she's like, what the hell do you think you're doing? You know, but... Uh... Very true. And in true Canine and Company style, a, she has to swerve off the road to avoid... I can't remember what it was now, but she had to swerve off the road. What was it? The three hooded fellas. Three yeah. hooded fellas. So, and, and I don't know about this card she's got now. This is clearly... This is she. She got an upgrade. She's but she's in the, in the illustrations in the annual. She's some battered Mark. Mark what kind of you're straight? What kind of car is that? I, I'm not sure. Maybe a Fiat. A Fiat. Some red boxy kind of maybe car. Maybe it's a Volvo. Maybe yeah. it's Aunt Lucia's run around because she crashed it. the Ferrari. So she so she totaled that, and Sarah thinks I need to up my game, get more money, so I can buy a swanky new sports car. So that's why she's taking down all the journalists and not calling them. <laughs> It does have one of my favourite illustrations of poor old canine landing on his side, looking all forlorn in the rain. Beautiful. Again, it's another tiny aspect of canine and company that they've put put into the story. So I think they've divided up a few themes like, right, there's got to be a car swerving off the road. There's got to be druids. There's got to be a reporter. There's got to be a pub. There's got to be a... And sort of stretch them out across all these stories, but... I'm complaining, but I actually like these stories. I love all of this. I did wonder because the what that they're after the the power stone, which is um, the stone that this cult had 400 years ago before they got buried in a landfall, and the descendants of this cult want to uh, carry on 
worshipping the dark powers, but they, they're not allowed to meet without the power stone. Um, like, <laughs> I love that the bylaws are so strict. <laughs> it sort of reminds me of that Handforth Parish Council thing. Um, but I did wonder how they got organised enough to ambush Sarah Jane's car if, they could, if they're not allowed to meet. 400 years of not meeting. And they're still going. That's, that's good work. <laughs> it's good. It's like it's like the Doctor Who magazine going through the wilderness years, isn't it? Yeah. So the um, the cults still exist. They're not allowed to meet unless they've got the power stone. So how did three of them manage to organise themselves to jump out of the bushes in front of Sarah Jane's car? They've got telegrams, well, Mark. It clearly says in the program they've got telegrams. So don't know what you're talking about. Just throwing reality right out the window there, hasn't it? But uh, absolutely, yeah. I'm looking at, coming soon from from Mark McManus is Sarah Jane and the Curse of Handforth coming up <laughs> and don't worry the police are called in about five minutes and it's all over <laughs> i suppose when the rules of the coven were written that predated telephones and telegrams and Mark, you're like overthinking it. it you're overthinking it <laughs> just go with it it's the devil Ooh, go with it no imagination that's your trouble that's why you never got because you never got enough annuals we were raised on this stuff you had to fill in your own ideas Outrageous. But fancy the power stone being found under Sarah Jane's house. Who'd have thought it, eh? <laughs> and the most Scooby-Doo bit is, is Brendan pulling the hood off the, uh, the the rival journalist, isn't it? So he must have already took the hood off to find out it was him, to put the hood back on so that he could surprise Sarah Jane by whipping it off again with a flourish and say, I think you know who this Satanist is. Yeah, it gives, Brendan it gives is not a... Yeah, he's, he's, he's setting up so that Sarah can give the final line of this makes a change. Tomorrow you won't be making the news. Tomorrow you'll be the news. Stick that in your leader, stick that in your leader Mr. Tobias. It's all very, it's, it's got the authentic ring to me. I'm behind this. I like Power Stone. I'm down with this. Because uh, it starts off with, um, with Brendan doing um, home renovations at... Um, at their house in Morton Harwood, and I was just trying to imagine Ian Sears there with his with a with a big hammer, and then I remembered, and then of course it's K Nine who's blasting the rock, and he's got nothing to do with it at all. He's just supervising. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do feel slightly that Sarah's a little bit passive in these stories. So in in this one. Um, it, it, it's Professor Clay who solves the mystery, phones the police, has the Satanists arrested. Um, in the the Lock Crag one, uh, it's all kind of taken care of by the police, um, kind of off screen. And then even in the Hound of Hell, she she's tied up. She does help to jog canine's memory potentially if it isn't just his auto repair circuits that that do the work. And then she um, she she passes out and wakes up when it's all over. This, um, I, mean, I suppose it's the K9 annual, not the Sarah annual. But well, that's uh, happened to her before, hasn't it? You know, oh, sacrificing again. You know, so once you stop travelling with the Doctor, it's still possible that you can be sac- sacrificed from time to time. You know, you just got to take it in your stride. It's very local, this one. That's what I wrote down. One of the notes I, wrote, I just wrote down, very local. Because it's all because it is because that's what Canine Company is. It's post offices, telegrams, local journalists. I think she the, the, this. Uh, I think 
she's initially Sarah Jane is initially being interviewed for the interesting neighbours column of the local newspaper. <laughs> I mean, you can only imagine what uh, what the headlines would have been. Well, since everyone in yeah. the village is in actually in some kind of cult, or yeah, rival there's not cult, many. It's yeah. a very interesting neighbours they've got. <laughs> Interesting neighbor is the person that takes the cults down. Um, <laughs> rather than, uh, yeah. So, you're not in a cult. What's that about? <laughs> <laughs> the only thing missing from the annual is a few cameos from Juno Baker, really. I mean, there's the recipe. Where's the recipe for fruit cup here? That's what I want to <laughs> It's know. not as innocuous as it sounds. Mm. Knock this back, it'll make you less prickly. Um, yeah, where's where's the recipe for fruit cup for all the gay boys? <laughs> Instead, you get how to solve the Rubik's cube. I'm not sure it's a great payoff. <laughs> well, you can't give it to K9. He'd be absolutely useless, wouldn't he? That's true. You'd end up with a piece of molten plastic, and that would be it. So yeah, overall, uh, enjoy it. Would you recommend this uh, this collection? A hundred percent. I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's great. I really, really enjoy this. And if you like Canine and Company, you'll love this. But like, it really, like it's it's great. And I, I genuinely listen. You know, having having to listen to all of these stories for a you know a podcast, it was not something I wouldn't normally listen to these. But actually, I really enjoyed it. I loved hearing the different uh, Dan Starkey, John Leeson. Uh, Jeffrey Beavers and Bonnie Langford reading all of this is great. And um, I, I love Sarah Jane and I love K9, so I love this. It is such a sweet collection of stories and it was perfect thing to listen to at the start of a cold new year. So, um, yeah, tail end of Christmas, you're catching up with all of the annuals that you found in your Christmas stocking and uh, there it was. I even did some adult colouring in while listening to it. So, you know, I was really... <laughs> Perfect. So pentangles and things like that. <laughs> there, there were a few, yeah. You get your Altair design books and uh, there you go. It was perfect. Um, yes, thoroughly recommend. Yeah, I have to say I absolutely loved it. I mean, this is really my my sort of era of Doctor Who as a kid, so... All of the as my favourite TARDIS team in in um, some of the stories, Canine Annual. Yeah, I I loved it. I'm I've really enjoyed all of the BBC audio versions of the annuals, but I have to say, I much preferred the Canine stories, which were far more fun than the the Dalek ones, which are full of macho posturing. These ones are just great fun, and yeah, I I could get swept along with this. It takes me back to being five or six and just staring at the pictures and trying to work out what the stories might be about, <laughs> which might be a better way of experiencing some of these stories than the actual stories themselves. No, it's, I, I think it's lovely as well, and there's a couple of stories that they that they haven't touched, so um, there's always the potential for a second volume as well. Um, and others, um, they're, they're still going with the Doctor Who annual versions, so... Uh, might uh, we might get to revisit this? Um, I was reading as well your Paul Mars book, the annual years, and uh, he's particularly 
warm about the canine annual. He, he says that he he watches Canine and Company every Christmas Eve, um, and then goes to bed and reads a story from uh, from the Canine Annual as a, as a tradition from when he was a kid, which uh, that was uh, you know kind of really lovely as well. Yeah, it's nice to have a few little traditions like that, isn't it? I mean, uh, this year we watched the um, two Dalek movies over Christmas, oh. and that was that was lots of fun. Yeah, I mean this all tied in with season 17 for me mm. so yeah just perfect timing definitely these are, these are t- t- tough times so dig into comfort as much as you can that's the we that's the really really need this stuff right now we really need this stuff right now unless you're unless you're young mark who's just like i didn't get a night rider annual and then calls the police <laughs> <laughs> other alternatives are available for people with no imagination <laughs> <laughs> Um, so speaking of season 17 join us on a future episode Um, Simon will be uh, hosting a discussion of the season 17 collection how could I miss that one oh my goodness (laughs) I'm very excited fantastic can't wait for that Uh, so thank you very much everybody and thank you very much everybody for listening at home thank you very much Thank you. Thanks for having me back again, Mark. And lovely to podcast with you guys. Me too. Oh, thank you, Denise. (laughs) Hail Satan. (laughs) Hail Santa. Hail Santa. (laughs) Ragok. 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 (laughs) Stop honking, Simon.